0: Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. In a departure from strict convention, three guests in two segments today. Jeet here will talk about politics in the Indian-American community in light of the presidential campaigns of two of its members, Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy. And then we'll hear from Steve Marr and Scott Aquano, authors of The Fall and Rise of American Finance, just out from Verso. The presidential campaigns of Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley have brought Indian-Americans to a new level of political salience. Jeet here, National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation, has an article in the February edition of the magazine, which has gone from weekly to monthly, reflecting the pressures on print these days, on the two candidates and the larger role of the Daisy diaspora in American society. Jeet here. He opened the piece with uh, a quote from Toni Morrison that uh, it's a rite of passage for immigrants to become haters. She is specifically saying haters of black people, but uh, it does seem to be a, a broader palette of hate objects today. Talk about this history of of how assimilation uh, into uh, American culture involves uh, becoming a hater of sorts.
1: I quoted Tony Morrison, and I could have actually quoted, there's a famous anecdote about Malcolm X at the airport, talking to someone, and there's a bunch of white kids that are coming out of the airplane, and he said, look at them, they're coming from Europe, and soon they're going to learn their first words as an American, the N-word. Uh, unfortunately, this has been part of the story of immigration. I think listeners will be familiar with the more positive view of immigration. You know, the Ellis Island story, you know, America is a nation of immigrants. That's true. Like immigrants are inseparable from the history of the United States, but they're coming into not a blank slate. They're coming into a highly racialized society that's already existing. There has been a you know, recurring pattern of um, immigrants sort of, you know, using whiteness as a way to climb up the ladder. Listeners might be familiar with uh, sort of the historical research of people like um, David Rediger, whiteness studies, how the Irish and Jews became white. This is a recurring pattern in history, and I think that we see it to some degree among Indian Americans who are have always had a kind of dubious status within the United States. There's actually a very interesting Supreme Court ruling in the early 1920s because there was a tightening of... Uh, uh, the immigration border, to uh, prevent non-whites from coming in. And there was all these issues of, you know, who is white and who isn't white. On the anthropology of that period, the notion was people from the Indian subcontinent are Caucasians, part of the family of Indo-European whiteness. Uh, but the court ruled, the man on the street knows who's white, right? And <laughs> there's a common sense whiteness. So they fell into the category of Caucasian, but not white. <laughs> that ambiguity, Caucasian, but not white, run through the history of uh, um, Indian-American immigration. It's
0: interesting that uh, a lot of racism in American politics today is directed, (laughs) well, it's always directed towards black people. That's a constant of American life. But there seems to be an especially virulent form of immigrant hatred, driving a lot of it. You focus on the figures of uh, Nikki Haley and uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who look like immigrants to a lot of nativist eyes, I think. Mm -hmm. So uh, how do they um, thread that needle?
1: I think the framework that I mentioned of sort of like, you know, becoming white is kind of very crucial. This is part of the story of upward mobility. Uh, Indian Americans uh, have had a long history in the United States. And, uh, you know, going back to the 18th century where they were sort of coming on these uh, Yankee clippers as part of, you know, the international whaling trade and others. But prior to like 1965, Indian Americans were very small in number and tended to be very working class. They tend to become as either farmers in California, or as I mentioned, seamen. Uh, and they tended within the framework of American racism to be seen as non-white. So a lot of those sailors married African American women. And a lot of the farm workers in California married uh, Mexican American women, because this is a period where immigration was primarily male sojourners. But after '65, the 1965 is a crucial date in the history of American immigration, uh, because uh, under the pressures, I think, of both the Cold War and the Civil Rights Movement, uh, the Immigration Act was changed to allow many more immigrants to uh, come in from all over the world. But there was a specific Cold War, war intent of uh, building up American uh, higher education and professional class. Uh, this is the area of the era of the Sputnik. Uh, freak out. And so uh, immigrants from India and the subcontinent in general, there was a real opening for people who are professional class, who are coming in as professors, doctors, engineers. And Nehru
0: had really been building up the technical education infrastructure in India, right? So...
1: Yeah, this is the second part of the story, and this is like very crucial, that there's several state-building projects at work. There's the American Cold War state building, and within the developing world, especially in places like uh, India, uh, there's a kind of real emphasis on education is the road to modernity, building up these uh, very good state schools. For our discussion, uh, we should mention the class and caste element, that the people who went to these elite state schools were already the kind of Brahmin caste in uh, India and had uh, longstanding relationships uh, with the British empire as the sort of uh, administrators of empire. They often knew English going back generations. And so it was a very highly educated, very elite group, that both India was producing in superabundance uh, and the United States was taking in in superabundance. And uh, to give a picture of who they are, I mean, th- these are the parents or the mother of uh, the Vice President, Kamala Harris, uh, who came over in the 50s as an academic. These are the uh, parents of uh, Vivek Ramswami, who also came over as a, a professional class immigrant. And these are the parents of Nikki Haley, who were uh, Sikhs uh, who came over also uh, in the academic field. You have almost a, a cohort of immigrants that's the exact inverse of the previous cohort, not working class. Indians in the 1920s and 30s were listed as the least educated and uh, uh, lowest income of uh, people in America, like lower than uh, uh, African Americans or Hispanic Americans.
0: Now, of course, there were only a few thousand of them at that point though, right?
1: Yeah, they, they were small in number uh, and they were very radical. They uh, The first communist party Uh, In the world. The first Indian led Communist Party in the world was created in Oregon uh, right before the First World War. But the 65 cohort are the technocratic class, and they've been very successful. And, you know, the first wave were academics. Then there was a sort of family migration that brought in spouses. And then in the 1990s, you had this new wave of tech people coming in under the sort of temporary visa, then, you know, gaining permanent residency. So you had these waves of very highly educated immigrants, and they they started to have children who were born in America, who became very easily integrated within American technocracy uh, and American higher education and, you know, rose in the last uh, decade or two to have figures like Haley, uh, Ram Swami and uh, the vice president.
0: Now, of course, uh, these two headline figures are pretty um, off-putting to us and most of the audience, I suspect. But uh, there are also five Indian Americans in Congress, and they're all Democrats, right? So they, it's not just reactionaries.
1: Yeah, yeah, know, and, and it should be mentioned, like, if we see this the the immigrant cohort uh, as the a success story of liberal technocracy you know they have really embraced it and then like you know there's very good polling showing 70% of um, uh, Indian Americans vote for the Democratic Party. And not just on like party issues, on like actual policy issues. Uh, they tend to be actually, plurality are uh, uh, liberals. Uh, and that's uh, very much an exception in the United States, especially of people of that class. Indian Americans are the wealthiest Americans as an ethnic group. Uh, and there used to be this old joke that American Jews... They live like Episcopalians and they vote like African-Americans. I think that joke actually applies to uh, Indian-Americans right now. All of that is sort of subject to change. I think this moment of sort of alignment with liberal technocracy is not going to last. And I actually think the figure of Ram Swami is um, uh, in some a precursor of the, of the sort of change. Although both Harris and uh, uh, Haley are very good representatives of American elite meritocracy.
0: I'm speaking with Jeet here, National Affairs Correspondent to the Nation. Let's talk about this a bit more. We talked about it some, but let's develop it. How Indians fit into the American racial taxonomy. Now in British usage, uh, I once had a British friend rebuke me for the way we use black because in British usage, Indians are black. How do they fit in? how are they perceived? How do Indian Americans themselves perceive their relation to this American racial system?
1: It's always been contested, and there was actually like a moment in the sort of 1970 census when the sort of Indian American population was burgeoning. There was again the question: Are they white or are they not white? And it was actually the case that the uh, Nixon administration wanted to classify people born in India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka as white, and then they met with resistance from these immigrant groups themselves, community uh, leaders who realized that this would mean that they couldn't be under the protection of the civil rights laws, so that if they did face racism, they would uh, not be protected. But I think that there is a kind of divide on the one hand, as even the 1970 example shows, there's an awareness that there's racism in America. Indian Americans are often a victim of that, especially the sort of anti-immigrant xenophobia. Uh, you know, both after 9-11 and uh, more recently, there's been sort of horrific attacks, especially sort of Indians who are like very visible, like um, religious Sikhs who wear the turban. Are often uh, victims of uh, t- uh, terrible racism. Uh, and I think especially the second generation who go to college, they become very aware of the racial network, much more than their parents. Their parents are kind of in a social world where they're kind of insulated from this. You know, once you're like born in America, you get you hear these jokes about a poo uh, you know, in the schoolyard, uh, you hear uh, racism, and then, you know, you kind of figure out where you fit in the hierarchy. The immigrant success story side of it, and particularly the fact that many of these people um, settle throughout the United States, not just in the big cities, but like, you know, people who grew up in Ohio, like Ram Swamy, or South Carolina, uh, like Haley, I think it's easy for them to m- maybe identify with the white majority who, after all, hold all the power. Uh, Haley's talked about a little bit about this, about how, you know, when she was in school, she was in a beauty pageant, and they weren't sure whether she counted as black or white. And but if you look at what the, the political project of both Ram Swamy and Haley, it's to you know, use their Indianness their, you know, like I, I'm brown and I'm successful. You know, like, why are people complaining about racism to basically, you know, use their ethnic identity as a human shield to defend white supremacy and to align their community with whiteness. You know, as I said, this is a minority position, but I think it's real. And I think their popularity says something. You know, they did find some traction within the Republican Party. And I think that there are people in the Republican Party who think that, you know, maybe the way to pitch an equal society is to use people who are of color, which includes, you know, African-Americans and Hispanics, but also these new immigrants as, as, you know, ways to prove America isn't racist and to kind of have a a new hierarchy where, I you a little bit of the British empire, right? Like you can't just run an empire with just white people. You need to bring in some members. You need your
0: comprador class.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Comprador, you know, these are the sort of racial compradores.
0: It's amazing that, uh, well, a couple of weeks ago, Haley could not list slavery as a cause of the Civil War, prompting even Donald Trump to mock her. Um, <laughs> what?
1: Her political rise was in South Carolina, and she's been you know photographed with the Confederate flag, has actually said on a number of occasions she thinks states have the right to secede. It is the context that, you know, like, you're an immigrant uh, of ambiguous identity within this white-dominated society, and is the temptation to identify with whiteness And to, you know, become the border guard of whiteness, I I think is very strong. One interesting difference in in social change is that both Haley and Bobby Jindal before her were converts to Christianity. Whereas Ram Swami is like sort of running completely, I'm a Hindu, uh, but Hinduism is totally compatible with Judeo-Christian morality. I dislike trans people as much as you do. Within Ram Swami, we see a newer kind of formation of like actually trying to um, decouple uh, religiousness from this white identity.
0: Caste is an issue in (laughs) India, but also uh, Indian American society. How does that figure, uh, you talked a bit about how the Indian immigrants to the U.S. tended to be from the upper caste.
1: That's changing, and I think that's why this is gonna play out.
0: Yeah, that was my question. Is there politics in California around caste?
1: Yeah, and to go back to the BJP and and Modi, like I think a lot of people in the West see the BJP as primarily uh, Islamophobic, wanting a Hindu India with religious minorities in second place. And that's very true. But the BJP, the origins of it were also related to caste politics that, you know, in sort of the India of Nehru, there was attempts to give aid to the the lowest caste, the sort of, you know, so-called untouchables or Dalits. It has the same battles as over affirmative action here. People in the upper caste were like, you know, why are you setting aside places in universities for Dalits, you know? And the BJP is partially is an anti-Dalit party or is, a, is an idea that we shouldn't challenge caste rules. These are part of who we are as a society. In the United States, Brahmins dominated the post-65 immigration. But that's changing as Indian universities send more people, many more people who are sort of untouchable or you know, Dalit origins coming to the United States, and also like um, many poor people, there's also a significant uh, undocumented population. My group is uh, the Sikhs, and we have a lot of taxi drivers. Uh, you know, Now what you're seeing is that that 1965 cohort, Brahmin-dominated in places like Silicon Valley, they resent any efforts to challenge, some of them resent efforts to challenge caste. They see their identity as uh, Indians as tied with caste. As you get people pushing for, like, you know, anti-caste laws and bringing in caste as a legally protected category for um, anti-discrimination lawsuits, some of the wealthier Indian Americans in Silicon Valley and elsewhere resent that. And, you know, like they, go, they are big donors to the Democratic Party, to people like uh, Gavin Newsom, and they were able to basically block this effort. So that's a huge fissure within the community, and I think it's just going to grow.
0: You have a couple of quotes of Vijay Prashad, which I found uh, very uh, enlightening, but also entertaining. Uh, Vijay first said that uh, of a lot of the Indian Americans, they're technocrats. They believe that history moves through a public policy document. But we're seeing now possibly the emergence of uh, a neoconservative caste cast, loaded word, within the uh, the Indian-American population. Yeah. So what about that emergence of neoconservatism?
1: Rashad, I think, has been a guest on your show often. He's very entertaining and I think a very cute a- a- analyst. I really relied on him. But, I mean, he had documents at the so-called Indian lobby in Washington that very much models itself as a- on APAC. They want what APAC has. They think like, you know, we have a group of very successful immigrants who have a lot of money. There's a familiar pattern of sort of diasporic extremism that, you know, the people the diaspora develop like very acute anxiety about identity and become uh, go overboard, and you know, like you know, the classic case of the Irish Americans in Boston. Uh, supporting the IRA, or you know, like in Brooklyn, uh, you get some of the uh, the most rabid uh, supporters of uh, the right wing of in Israel and of settlements. Right, so there is that minority cohort within the community that is specifically modeling itself after APAC, with the idea that like India and America are actually like foreign policy wise becoming closer. And you know, the United States is very eager, you know, under Biden to rebuild up the relationship with India as a counterweight to China we're already seeing that they're kind of trying to lobby to make sure that there aren't sanctions against India if they are like anti-Muslim pogroms uh, to downplay human rights and to downplay the sort of tensions within the community. Because they are like, you know, a lot of Indian Americans are also Sikh or uh, Muslim or Christian. And as religious minorities, they have human rights concerns, tensions within India between the BJP and the religious minority, they're also gonna play out in the, the diaspora. And I think that that's both, in that case both religion and uh, to some degree sort of caste or I would even say class differences between you know, like the sort of uh, the upper class that's very aligned with the status quo in the United States and India as against the sort of more working class population that we're uh, starting to see emerge.
0: The Ram Swami campaign and the Haley campaign are failing. But what kind of lasting mark do you think they're going to leave on uh, Indian American politics?
1: I think Ram Swami already, um, he's created an important innovation with trying to align uh, Hindu uh, religious right with the American religious right. I don't know if it will ultimately come to pass. I really can't see the uh, sort of uh, leaders of the Southern Baptist suddenly deciding that uh, uh, Krishna and uh, Ganesh are part of, you know, the Judeo-Christian Hindu tradition. That seems like a stretch, but he's making the effort and I think that's actually very important. Nikki Haley has become the voice of this older establishment Republican Party, um, and has done it by really, you know, playing up her identity as a a woman and as someone who's non-white, but who is totally committed to the Republican Party platform. Both of these are sort of significant precursors, or, uh, you know, they'll prefigure, like, the sort of uh, future uh, politics that's emerging. You know, how long the, the alliance between Indian Americans and liberal technocracy will last I, I think it's up to up to question. Uh, and we didn't even mention, but I think there's splinters on the left as well, that a lot of you know, Indian Americans, including ones who are like Hindu and Sikh, but they're not very happy with uh, Biden's Palestine policy. You'll see a lot of Indian Americans at any pro-Palestine protest. Biden tried to have a Diwali event, and it was like boycotted by many Indian Americans, uh, including the Canadian poet Rupi Kaur. Honestly, I'm not a fan of the poetry, but like her letter to Biden, like was you know a, really a standout. and it's actually I think really telling um, that that whole event because you know like it, elite Indian Americans they love two things they love to party and they love to hobnob with celebrities, but the fact that uh, you know like there's a significant contingent that boycotted this event again I, I think it shows you that liberal technocracy is kind of splintering and it's going to go off in different directions on the left and right. That was
0: Jeet here, National Affairs correspondent to the Nation and author of The Divided Landscape of Indian American Politics, which appears in the February issue of the now monthly magazine. My name is Doug Henwin and the program is Behind the News, back after Musical Break. Some of Perdido by Developer, the stage name of Adrian Sandoval, a Los Angeles DJ, in a remix by Charlotte DeWitt from her Residency 018 collection. Next, who owns and runs corporate America? This is a topic I've got a long history with, beginning with my 1996 book Wall Street, which you can download for free at wallstreetthebook.com. It includes an extended look at the evolution of the corporate form, notably its transformation by the shareholder revolution of the 1980s. That revolution took corporate America from a world largely run by managers, with stockholders almost vestigial, to one where stockholders and their interests were dominant. A major reason for this transformation is that coming out of World War II, stocks are overwhelmingly owned by dispersed, though of course well-off, individuals, to one where ownership became more concentrated in institutions like pension funds. Individuals are hard to organize in order to lobby corporate managers to change their policies. Giant pension funds aren't. Also, CEO pay was transformed from a straight salary—high but modest by today's standards—to one largely dependent on the stock price. The point was to make managers think and act like shareholders, not autonomous operators. So where are we now? My next guests, Steve Marr and Scott Aquano, are just out with a book from Verso, The Fall and Rise of American Finance. Their main focus is the latest wrinkle in what's called corporate governance—how big firms are run and by whom. Coming out of the 2008 financial crisis, a new set of players emerged in the financial scene, the giant asset managers, notably the Big Three, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street. They collectively own over a fifth of the U.S. stock market. Much of that bulk comes from running index funds, pools of money designed to replicate market benchmarks like the S&P 500. The reason behind index funds is that unless your name is Soros or Buffett, it's nearly impossible to beat the market. The best you can do is emulate it via an index fund. Since the funds don't require active management, their fees are also quite low. But what does this mean for how corporations are run? Stock prices are supposed to reflect the market's judgments on corporate management, but if index funds can't buy or sell freely, then they're not providing much of a signal. How good a signal, that is, is another story entirely. In theory, the index fund managers could talk with CEOs and complain about poor performance, but is it worth their time? And again, whether that's good or bad is another story entirely. Marr and Aquano assert that the fund managers do intervene with management. As you'll hear, I'm very skeptical. They're also quite sanguine about the effects of finance on the productive economy. While I'd never subscribe to a neat division of the world into industry good and finance bad, there's still something to the division, and it's a mistake to overlook that. Enough of me. Here are Steve Marr and Scott Aquano. Marr teaches economics at SUNY Cortland, and Scott Aquano teaches political science at Ontario Tech University. Apologies for not identifying their voices better, but as a clue, Marr does most of the talking. Okay, let's fast forward uh, to what emerged out of the 2008 financial crisis. And there's a lot of history we're skipping over here, but, you know, people can buy your book and read it. Out of that emerged these giant three money managers, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, which collectively own a massive chunk of the U.S. and other stock markets. Now, you frame these people, these actors, as a new finance capital, some J.P. Morgan reborn in some sense. So describe the system overall and and how you see its significance.
2: So basically what you see coming out of the 2008 crisis is the massive concentration of the already highly concentrated pools of ownership within the pension funds in the hands of these three giant asset management companies that you just mentioned. They pull together the already concentrated pools into kind of super pools of ownership capital. That's the primary base of their power. On the basis of this passive investment revolution, whereby they are able to offer very, very low fees and relatively high returns compared to other options given the very low interest rates of the period. So they, they amass together very large pools of, of shares, And they become the most concentrated ownership force in the history of capitalism, owning something like an average of 20 percent of 98 percent of the S&P 500 uh, with with an average of 20 percent holdings in each firm. Um, So it's a massive, massive concentration of ownership because these firms are passive investors, meaning that they literally, by contract, are barred from trading other than to reflect the movements of particular firms within indexes like the S&P 500 or, or the FTSE 1000 or, or the NASDAQ. They, they can only trade shares to track the relative weight of firms in an index so that their portfolios reflect the same ordering of firms as those indexes do. What they have to do since they can't just dump shares of, of, of firms that are underperforming is they have to engage in more direct methods of intervention to ensure that the value of those assets increases. And that is to say, since, since their profits are calculated as a percent of their assets under management, they have a, a direct incentive to ensure that, those, that the value of those assets continues to rise. And so in order to do that, they have to intervene directly, work directly with the management of those corporations in order to ensure that the strategy, et cetera, and and structure of those corporations is such to remain competitive and and, and ensure the the rising value of those financial assets. So rather than than dumping the shares of underperforming firms, they they take a role in overseeing the creation of surplus value, the production of surplus value within those corporations. Very similar, therefore, to the role of JP Morgan in the sense that they're coordinating across networks of firms to ensure that their overall ownership interests are respected. They're not micromanaging those firms. What we're talking about here is corporate control. And the point that's, that we're trying to make is that there is a, a layer of power that is formed over and above the internal managers of those industrial firms um, that they are accountable to in some sense.
0: This is where I have trouble with your argument. There's not that much that they actually do intervene. I mean, you provide some from things that Larry Fink says, or reports from Vanguard and BlackRock. But uh, there's a fairly large literature now, uh, I'm thinking, for example, of Lucian Bebchuk and Scott Hurst, who argue that they don't, uh, intervene. Uh, they don't have the incentive to intervene because it's just not worth their time and effort. The payoff would be so small because any increase in stock prices, because their fees are so low, would have very little direct effect on their income. BlackRock has about 70, a staff of about 70 monitoring its huge portfolio, which works out to about one workday per year per stock. Uh, so they, they really don't have the staff or Uh, by Bebchuk and Hearst's argument, the incentive uh, to intervene much, they vote with management about 90% of the time. And they don't don't want to annoy CEOs by intervening because they want their 401k business. So I see a situation in which a huge portion of the stock market is controlled by holders who can't sell, uh, which interferes with the 1980s notion of the market as a real-time report card on corporate management. And who don't have the incentive to intervene. So it looks like a, a situation where corporate governance is on autopilot, which is one reason that uh, Dorothy Lund of the uh, Columbia Law School says they shouldn't even be allowed to vote their shares. What is your evidence of all this extensive intervention?
2: Well, first of all, I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, the, the amount of power that any shareholder has over corporate governance is going to be proportional to their holdings. It's, it's unrealistic to think that, that any corporation undertakes any kind of significant strategic action without coordinating with the firm that owns 20% of their shares.
0: But now the CEO is saying, uh, okay, why should I listen to you? You're not, you can't sell my shares, so why should I listen to you?
2: Well, they can vote in shareholder meetings. And I think in general what happens is, is the times when, you see, when times when you see these firms voting against management in shareholder meetings – the ten percent in the figure that you gave is was really the kind of last resort for these for these firms for these large owners. I mean, in general, one would expect that that there's routine coordination that goes on between management and these large owners, and that only in in very extreme cases, in which in which had been some breakdown of the normal forms of coordination, would it go so far as as the owners needing to actually vote against management. In the most extreme case, to unseat management. Given that, they vote against management a surprising amount of the time. And uh, support, uh, the, obviously, the threat that they would support independent shareholder proxy initiatives uh, in the advanced by more aggressive activist shareholders is always there. And so that's why Scott and I argue that, that the, the more aggressive, uh, he- newer, smaller hedge funds that emerged uh, following the 2008 crisis are a key part of this whole system. Because these activist investors being there means that there's always a threat that these 20% owners, BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard on average, owning 20%, that these 20% owners could vote in support of uh, independent shareholder initiatives that do have a significant uh, uh, disciplinary effect over over industrial managers. And so there's a a strong incentive to make sure that that the BlackRock's of the world are are not in opposition to what management is doing. And in extreme cases... When these normal routine forms of coordination behind the scenes break down, they do vote against management. So more so, it's actually surprising in a way. It's 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 a considerable amount of the time that, that these that these firms do vote against management, uh, given that that one would expect this is going on behind the scenes.
0: There is a, a paper from a couple of years ago, written by uh, an investment banker who then reformed his life after having cancer. That's another story entirely. But the title of it was something like, uh, Indexing is Worse Than Marxism.
2: Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> and the argument
0: is that there is no discipline being provided by the shareholders uh, because it is just so passive. So I don't know. I, I, your, your view of these guys as extensively intervening is, is I would say, not widely shared, uh, either by practitioners or um, academics.
2: I mean, look, the key point we're trying to make here is, is, that, is that this is still capitalism. And I think the, the, the argument we're really trying to challenge, in fact, is the one that's put forward by a pretty influential strand of social democratic literature, holding that basically, as Hilferding argued, these guys have basically formed a command economy and that they are effectively planning out uh, production. They are planning out the, the industrial economy. They are engaging in restraining competition through anti-competitive forms of price fixing effectively in the firms that they own, preventing the corporations that they own from competing with one another. And so, therefore, the main political objective is to restore competition by breaking these ownership blocks up. And so this is really what we're trying to push against. We're trying to say that, yes, these, these, these firms are highly concentrated and centralized. Yes, the ownership stakes that they hold are unprecedented. Uh, and in many respects, the kinds of networks that they form across the firms that they own resemble those of the of the of the late 19th and early 20th century, the, the networks of J.P. Morgan. But in both cases, just as Hilferding was wrong to say that the J.P. Morgans of the world were were engaged in anti-competitive price fixing, et cetera, uh, and day-to-day micromanagement of those firms, so too is that wrong in the case of Larry Fink and BlackRock, right? And so and so the the. The point is that that each that BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard have an interest in maximizing the competitiveness of each individual firm that they own, and that you know the example frequently given, for example, of the airline industry, that supposedly these owners are are preventing are, are preventing prices from falling for for airline travel. Uh, that's the most frequently cited case, but it's it's generalized. And people kind of assume a lot of the literature kind of assumes that this is going on, you know, widely across the economy, and so therefore the rise of these of these uh, asset management companies is coming with higher prices, more sluggish growth, et cetera, et cetera, as they engage in their monopolistic practices. And so we're really trying to say that that's wrong and that this remains incredibly competitively disciplined and organized around profit maximization at the firm level. Once you start to take seriously
3: competition, you see that there is, is in fact all the reason for these firms to intervene in their portfolio companies. Right? These firms are competing for savings that means that they have to offer their investors the highest possible returns while tracking a particular index. If
0: they're selling index products, they're all the same.
3: And and that's a great point. And this is the common assumption in the literature. But we show very clearly that even though these companies that BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street own many of the same companies, their proportion of ownership in these companies is vastly different, meaning that BlackRock does stand to gain from interventions in particular firms vis-a-vis Vanguard, and, and it's done so regularly. This, I mean, so a, a few points, uh, Doug, just to kind of push against this. We show in the book that uh, in 2020, for example, BlackRock held over 3,500 company engagements, which covered nearly 65% of global equity under management. This is a significant intervention into their portfolio firms, which
0: has been helped. But no, the engagement is really loose and undefined. Barbara Novick, the vice president at BlackRock, uh- BlackRock said that the engagement includes this proxy voting. You really do have to wonder how extensive uh, these engagements are if they're doing 3,500 of them with a staff of 70.
3: Certainly, some engagements are going to be more significant to the, uh, than than others, but uh, all the evidence also suggests that BlackRock is is active behind the scenes and discussing with their portfolio companies their priorities, etc. And this is helped along by their Aladdin system, which helps them to prioritize these engagements and ensure the resources are targeted effectively. So, I think there's an incredible infrastructure that BlackRock, for example, possesses that allows them, even with a relatively small staff, to engage in their portfolio companies. And then like I think one also has to be care- careful about the voting record. BlackRock voted I mean 2 years ago voted against one or more of management recommendations at that- of shareholder meetings in the U.S., including 8% of management recommendations on government-related issues. So those aren't insignificant facts, and they can't just be washed away, we don't think, especially what makes them especially more significant, of course, is all the routine behind-the-scenes intervention that the the big three uh, are participating in. Now, this, of course, right, this, of course, does not mean micromanagement. These firms are not interested in, you know, managing all of the operations, of the portfolio firms they hold. But they do wield a significant degree of, of influence over some of these firms and some of their actions. That's the point that, uh, that we're trying to make. And they do so precisely because of competition, precisely because in the absence of the ability to exit, competition, as we say, takes the form of intervention. And once one recognizes the competitive dynamics within contemporary financialization, as opposed to kind of not recognize those things, it becomes much more, I, I think, accessible uh, and much more um, obvious that there are these these kind of mechanisms and forms of intervention within these firms.
0: I'm speaking with Steve Marr and Scott Aquano, authors of The Fall and Rise of American Finance, just out from Verso. You do spend a lot of time defending financialization against the charge that it undermines um, the real sector, that the higher rate of financialization of the last couple of decades has uh, depressed investment and growth. Now, there is a fairly large literature, and I think Thomas Philippon at NYU as one example, arguing that actually investment is lower and growth is lower than would otherwise be because of high levels of financialization. It would have been nice if you'd engaged that that literature some just to see what what your thoughts on it are. Philippon is a critic of stock buybacks, for example. $11 trillion in the S&P 500 companies since 1998, almost $3 trillion uh, since uh, 2020 for the S&P companies. Many people argue that the uh, that buyback money, that 11 trillion, uh, could better have been deployed on real investment. Buybacks weren't even legal before 1982. It's good for the CEOs, who are paid in stock, nice for shareholders, and uh, there's uh, findings that uh, companies with higher index fund ownership are more likely to do buybacks. But as far as I can tell, it contributes mostly to the wealth of the top 1% or top one-tenth of 1%. Um, but that's about it. In recent years, we've seen Boeing, once an American superstar, failing dramatically with doors blowing out their planes and such. They are heavy buybackers. Airlines did big buybacks uh, in the late Uh, years of the previous decade. They needed a federal bailout when COVID hit. They had no reserves last. Biden's CHIPS Act, a free money program for the semiconductor makers, works out to essentially a reimbursement for a decade of buybacks. I don't know. You you seem to be uh, rather sanguine about this and find no opposition between finance and uh, real economy, but uh, there's some evidence to the contrary.
2: Yeah, this is a really obviously important issue that a lot of people are talking about and which we take on very directly in the book. First of all, one has to understand buybacks as a way of distributing surplus value generated by the industrial corporations to investors. And buybacks being at the rate that they are, the level that they are, is a result of the very high profits of those corporations. So the first thing to notice is that is that if you look at investment as a percentage of profits, profits are extremely high, historically high. And so if you look at corporate investment as a percentage of profits, it looks low because profits have grown so much. But if you look at investment as a share of GDP it's pretty flat throughout the entire post-war period and even elevated.
0: Now now this is getting geeky but if you look at net investment net of depreciation that's actually fallen rather dramatically so it's uh, corporate investment tends to be quicker payback and stuff that rots quicker than it used to be in earlier decades.
2: The point is that that if, if the, the very high rate the very high mass of profits that have been generated throughout the throughout the, since the 1990s has been reflected in the distribution of some of that extra cash, it's not being used to, to, uh, for, for investment to, to shareholders through buybacks. It's a form of interest, effectively. I, it's not clear to me that keeping that cash inside of the industrial corporation as in the form of retained earnings would have significantly different outcomes, especially since the very high levels of profitability and therefore the large pools of cash controlled by those managers of those industrial corporations has led those firms to themselves become net lenders on financial markets.
0: But if profitability is so high, why aren't they investing more?
2: Well, that's a reasonable question. That's a reasonable question.
0: And I would say it's the shareholder pressure uh, to uh, just distribute more money to them. But otherwise, if you just looked at uh, the rate of profit on paper, you'd think there'd be a gusher investment and, and long-term investment. And, and, and there's not. It's like a lot of quick, uh, quick payback, uh, fast depreciation investment.
2: I, I, I personally see no reason why it would make more, it would be more or less dysfunctional to capitalism. Which particular capitalists are holding the money capital generated in, that, 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 that is generated through surplus value production by industrial firms? Just because that, that surplus is distributed to financiers. You know, the, industri- the, the internal financialization of those industrial corporations themselves means that those non-financial corporate managers are themselves finance capitalists, as I was saying earlier. Why would it be better for them to be holding onto this money capital? Why would we expect-
0: Well, Boeing's doors wouldn't be blowing off in flight. Really though? I mean,
2: why wouldn't those internal corporate managers themselves be then do- engaging in lending, which they are, right? Why wouldn't they themselves be engaging in investing in financial activities, which they are? This is a matter of the competitive allocation of money capital across different possible outlets.
0: Well, it's also CEOs who want to boost their uh, remuneration by boosting the stock price. This is not necessarily healthy for the capitalist system, although it's healthy for a, a small CEO uh, and uh, portfolio manager class.
2: See, this is where I think I really disagree, Doug. And, and that, that, that is to say that, that I, I think that this is the way capitalism functions. I don't think we can attribute these, these issues you're rightly pointing to, to the corrupting influence of finance. I think this is the way capitalism functions, and whether you, if you force uh, internal corporate managers to hold, off, if you force this money capital to stay within the industrial corporations rather than be distributed to financiers, I don't see any reason why, based on just the logic of competition and trying to maximize their own returns, you wouldn't see the same results: cost cutting, just-in-time production. It was the it was the industrial titans uh, of Japan which invented just-in-time production, competitive, flexible restructuring of production. Right, which, is what's, which is what's coming home to roost in the form of Boeing's catastrophes. I don't think you can peg all this just on finance. And I think that if, if, if these pools of money capital were retained in the hands of industrial managers within these industrial corporations, I don't see any reason to believe that they wouldn't themselves then invest in more extensively as they have been in financial activities, which in fact is nothing other than circulating money capital across the economy to be invested wherever it is most profitable. That's just capitalism. And finance is enabling that circulation of money capital across the economy, not corrupting it.
0: Buybacks were illegal before 1982, and you know you you point to the um, the the influence of the state on shaping the capitalist system. That's one example where the state did something uh, very consequential that most people, of course, don't think about very much. But the state could change that.
2: Well, yes, and, and we we talk about that in the book: the, the the SEC shift that that legalized buybacks, and this was effectively a a a move that that legalized or that permitted new channels for the operation of interest-bearing capital. I mean, you know, we could get technical about this, but basically buybacks are a form of interest, right? They're a form of interest paid back to financiers, holders of interest-bearing capital. And and that move on the part of the SEC was really about institutionalizing the the, the hegemony or the power within the capitalist class of of shareholders and financiers, which we discussed earlier. Um, So so what you see is, is surplus being generated within these firms and being redistributed to investors. Right. And, and that's taking the form of buybacks. So the stock market is, as you pointed out in your very important book, Doug, Wall Street, the, the stock market is indeed a mechanism or an institutional avenue for redistributing surplus, uh, not, not it's primarily one for raising capital. And that is, is simply an institutional channel through which these hierarchies within the capitalist class are, are institutionalized and consolidated. Right? and and there's just no fundamental reason why one group of capitalists having control of capital would, would be better or more or or, le- or more dysfunctional for the overall capitalist system given the the, the, the where profits are generated and how than, than another
0: We're it- running out of time and so I want to turn to a topic dear to all our hearts, our mutual friend Karl Marx. you pledge strong allegiance to Marx, which is of course something I endorse entirely but it seems to me you're missing a whole uh, side of Marx. You, you defend the rationality of finance and its rationality for the whole system, uh, but for Marx, the absurdity of this system, the piling of the credit upon credit in the most fanciful way uh, is something um, that he mocks, something that he thinks is part of the, uh, the pathology of capitalism. There are phrases like, interest-bearing capital is the mother of every insane form, the most colossal system of gambling and swindling, and uh, the passage I use as an epigraph for Wall Street. The credit system is one enormous centralization that gives this class of parasites a fabulous power, and I almost call the book Fabulous Parasites for this reason. A fabulous power, not only to decimate the industrial capitalists periodically, but also to interfere in actual production in the most dangerous manner. This crew know nothing of production and have nothing at all to do with it. So it seems, in your eagerness to distance yourself from vulgar leftism, you drop this side of Marx, and uh, what that side of Marx is, you know, part of the reason we hate capitalism.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, so I, I, I think I think. Nobody, certainly Scott and I are not trying to argue here that that financialization, et cetera, doesn't have contradictions and crisis tendencies or that there's no speculation that occurs or that, uh, you know, there aren't excesses in the financial system. And in fact, the book itself lays out the entire history of the American capitalist system as, as evolving through a, a series of four very extreme crises that are often that have been associated with primarily with, with financial uh, activities starting with the 1929 crash which, which brought an end to the classical period of finance capital. So we're certainly not saying that that financialization is not crisis prone or that capitalism is not crisis prone or that or that the, the, the contradictions of capitalism uh, uh, aren't, aren't inevitably going to be felt in a, in a systematic and, and, and continuous fashion that, in, that, that, that punctuates the whole development of the system. On the contrary, that's how we explain its development. Um, I think I, – so I, I think it's, we certainly would agree with what, with, Mar- with what Marx said, although it's worth pointing out that, that Marx is writing at a time prior to the development of the modern multinational corporation in, in the quotes you were just reading. But, but I think the more important point in Marx uh, when, in, in terms of the overall thrust of his argument in Volume 3 especially is the danger uh, uh, from the point of view of the working class – of trying to separate finance versus industry, of, try, of trying to pin all the evils of the capitalist system on the supposedly true, par, truly parasitic financiers, and therefore ignore the role of the industrial capitalists who are the actual exploiters of the working class. And, and uh, Marx writes eloquently and extensively about this in volume three. And so I think this is really what we're trying to take on, the social democratic argument that the true bad capitalists are the financiers. They're the true exploiters. And so workers should team up with the good capitalists, the the, the industrialists who are their bosses, to to rein in the power of the true exploiters. And then we can restore good old happy golden age Keynesian capitalism. That's just fundamentally unrealistic. And it's not like that system was so good in any case. And moreover, the modern form of financialization, as I was describing earlier, took, took, took shape precisely during that golden age of capitalism in which we supposedly have a pre-financialized industrial led manufacturing capitalism it was it was the contradictions of that moment that generated the financialization of those firms uh, as they as they diversified and internationalized and, and top management was converted into finance capitalists as i was mentioning earlier um, so, so I think what we're really trying to take on here are these are these, these reformist arguments that, that basically try to pin all of the evils of capitalism on finance. And I think this is so widespread in the literature, and Marx himself cautioned against this very strongly in Volume 3.
0: All right, and the final question. Another side of Marx that you allude to uh, but don't really endorse and sometimes even express some hostility to is a more utopian one, that the joint stock company shows that owners are useless and offer some promise for a better society—the abolition of the capitalist mode of production within the capitalist mode of production itself. You do quote that passage, but he goes on to say, "Capitalist joint stock companies, as much as cooperative factories, should be viewed as transitional forms from the capitalist mode of production to the associated one." Uh, and then I would also, you know, say that uh, the uselessness of owners, this owning class, uh, is really highlighted, I think, by these big three. Now, you think they're really intervening with management. I am very skeptical about their intervening very much. They seem like pretty passive. um, And that's the whole idea of passive investment. So there's this political opportunity missed here in seeing uh, the growth of these giant asset managers as a really fat target for political agitation. They bring nothing to the party. They contribute no real capital to production to speak of. And um, why not do away with them? Well, I think we should do away with them, uh, but but
2: I think that, that the reason why we should do away with them is, is different than what a lot of people think, or the reason why there are a problem is different than what a lot of people think. As I said, there's an extensive literature arguing that these guys are basically controlling corporations in order to engage in effectively monopolistic forms of, of cartelization and trust building, which, which, which result in higher prices and, and eliminate competitiveness, because they coordinate across these corporations and prevent them from competing with each other. It's a very extensive legal literature and, and, and political economic literature that makes this case. And this is really what we're trying to challenge, right? that these guys have built a command economy, because they haven't. Um, What they've actually done is is enact the the fundamental dynamics and and pressures of of capitalism. And and, and they have an interest very directly in in maximizing the competitiveness of the individual firms that they own. So I think we should do away with them, but I don't think they're the only problem. I think the real danger of of personalizing the issue onto, say, Larry Fink, is that one could easily convince people or come to believe that that Larry Fink is the problem. And once we get rid of Larry Fink and a couple of bankers, just like Hilferding kind of thought, we can have a better or good capitalism. And I think what, what we really have to keep in mind here, especially as Marxists, if we want to go down that route, is that this is the capitalist system. It's not individuals. It's not just Larry Fink. You know, as, as my mentor and Scott's mentor, Leo Panitch, used to say, the bourgeoisie doesn't eat babies for breakfast, right? Marx's primary contribution to, to economic theory, was, in a political sense, was to point out that, that it's, not, it's not a matter of morals. It doesn't matter about the spiritual virtues of the individuals who may be atop the capitalist system. It's a system, and it disciplines capital to maximize the exploitation of surplus value because of the coercive laws of competition. And so regardless of the ethical status of particular humans who may be you know, powerful within, within the structure of the capitalist economy, uh, it's the system that's the problem, not just the individuals. And I think that's really what we have to keep in mind. I mean, and as for the point you made about the socialization of capital within the corporation, this is really problematic in Marx. I think this 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 phrase we, we quote it in our book uh, and uh, in a way to, to illustrate that the socialization of capital through the processes that you just mentioned serve to intensify and reproduce the basic structural logics of capital, but don't negate it. But in Marx, and, and also in the, throughout the entirety of the, the second international, uh, kind of political tent- trajectory, you see this idea that the corporation is a kind of transitional form to socialism. Hilferding goes so far as to say that, that the credit system is a kind of corrupt form of socialism, that actually it's, 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 it's not really a fit for capitalism. It's mostly about building towards socialism. And to us, this just makes no sense. And I think this was a huge mistake to see things in this way. I think the capitalist corporation is organized around c- competition, it's organized around allocating capital based on price signals. And the kind of planning that goes on in the corporation has little to do with with the kind of planning we would expect to see in a socialist society.
0: That was Stephen Marr, co-author along with Scott Aquano of The Fall and Rise of American Finance from Verso. During the 2010s, Boeing spent $43 billion in stock buybacks. That was about six times what it spent on plane-making equipment. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, some of We Can Be Together by the Jefferson Airplane. Till next week, bye.
2: Private property is target for your enemy.